Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Welcome to all, wherever you're joining us from. For some, it's the evening. For some, it's morning. We're able to bring this program, this global conversation on Russian relations with Jill Doherty, to the world free of charge, thanks to all of our members at Global Minnesota, whose support year after year makes these public affairs programs possible. For 70 years, we've been connecting Minnesotans to the world and the world to Minnesota. And tonight will be another one of those special opportunities to really dive deeper into one of the most important international issues in front of us as a nation, in front of the world, our relations with Russia and the deepening ties that have been developing in the post-Soviet era. Tonight, we're going to have uh, some special guests. I wanna start with some thank yous because we do these global conversations as a partnership. Some of you know that when we're able to, we meet at the downtown, the big central library. Our partners there, the Minneapolis the Central Library, the Friends of the Hennepin County Libraries and the Landmark Center, now we're all virtual, all uh, digital for a while, uh, but we look forward to being able to greet you and others back in that venue sometime in the future. This is part of a series, we call it the Great Decision Series, that we do in combination with the Foreign Policy Association and with partners here, the Edina Library, the Friends of the Edina Library, Washburn Library and Plymouth Library, these are partners of ours that we are cherished and that we uh, look forward to finding more ways of partnering on these important international and global issues. Tonight, we have a special guest, one of our favorite people in the local media and uh, now a star of screen, at least, and some of the, you have caught her uh, doing political commentary. Uh, her uh, opportunities um, extend because she's been the chief political reporter at our local newspaper. Patricia Lopez um, uh, went from being a political reporter to being in charge of the political reporting and now has been on the editorial board of the Minneapolis Star Tribune since 2016, covering everything, local politics, national politics. You'll probably see her next week. It's gonna be that kind of week. Um, and we're just uh, thrilled that Patricia can join us tonight uh, to moderate and, and to lead the questioning of our special guest. And our special guest, Jill Doherty, is um, somebody that we've been really privileged and very honored to be able to sponsor and to have here in Global Minnesota's programming um, once a year, as often as we can. But she was started out um, 30 some years ago as a CNN bureau chief in the Moscow Bureau for uh, what was then a new idea, the CNN News Service, and for 30 years has been reporting a lot on Russia and post-Soviet region, uh, but reporting from 50 countries from all over the planet. Eventually came back, she was uh, covering the State Department, uh, covering the kind of internationalization of the policies that were unfolding in the post-Soviet era. And she is now, uh, among many things, adjunct professor at Georgetown um, and uh, a, a member of the Keenan Center, which has been sponsoring speakers from Russia and the former Soviet Union 
to help inform the American public. And so that's an important partnership for us this evening. Uh, her studies took her to Ann Arbor for Slavic uh, language and literature. Uh, her PhD, I think, was might have been Russian soft power diplomacy, a very interesting topic. Maybe that'll come up in the questions. And she's um, a member of the Council of Foreign Relations and the World Affairs Council. Um, uh, on behalf of Global Minnesota, all of our members and our community, Jill Doherty, we want to welcome you back. And we're really looking forward to the program this evening. Global Minnesota is honored to host you here again. Take it away, Patricia. Well, thank you to Global Minnesota and the Keenan Institute for co-hosting this evening. Um, Jill, I want to start by talking about Russian disinformation and interference in the last election and what's transpired since then and what might we expect yet in this election? Uh, well, in the uh, interest, Pat, of uh, no disinformation, I will say, Mark, thank you very much for elevating me to a PhD, but I actually got a master's at Georgetown. I do have an honorary PhD, but I don't think that counts. So uh, in any case, I'm really glad to be here. And I just wish I were there in person, but uh, that's not going to happen. So we'll do the next best thing. And I think actually these sessions, you know, I teach on Zoom. Um, I live on Zoom and I think they work out just fine. So we're looking forward. Pat and I will talk I think about a half an hour, and then we will open it up to questions. So Pat, thank you, I know I'm in good hands. So getting to your first question, um, I think essentially Russia will do something similar to what it did in 2016. And as we know in 2016, it did a variety of things and it has been doing that for a very long time. I think it's important to point out that this, you know, what Russia is doing, interfering in elections and disinformation, et cetera, did not begin in 2016. It goes way, way back. And as Pat knows very well, it goes back actually to the old Soviet days and to Vladimir Lenin back in 1917. This has, using information has been, and propaganda, uh, has been very, very important to the Soviet Union and now to Russia. And it's very important to Vladimir Putin, who, as we all know, is a former KGB officer. And right from the get-go, when he came into power in 2000, it was very obvious that he was going to make information a central part of his rule as president of Russia. So I think uh, what they will do is they'll use some of the techniques that they used in 2016, because after all, if it works, you continue to use it. So there, was, uh, there were a variety of techniques that they used and strategies. And I think it would be helpful, I'll try to keep this brief, but I think it would be helpful to look at how this kind of, I would call it a full court press by Russia plays out and it plays out not only in the United States, but in France and Europe in general and in other countries, certainly in Ukraine and countries that are closer uh, to the border of Russia. So what they do is beginning at the top, you have the government, official statements by the government, official statements by President Putin. And we can talk about that just the other day, he was talking about Joe Biden and Joe Biden's son. So you have official statements of foreign ministry, the presidency, et cetera. Then you have the next which, uh, step, which would be the official media 
And that I would count not only domestic Russian media, but RT, which everybody knows mm -hmm. is their international uh, broadcaster. And so there is propaganda, information, misinformation, and disinformation used by RT internationally, which by the way, broadcast not only in English, but in uh, Spanish and some other languages. Then you have, um, I'd say you have the intelligence agencies, which would include the SVR, and that is their external intelligence agencies. And now we're getting into a little bit more uh, direct, directed use of disinformation. And certainly the GRU, the GRU, if you want to Google that, they are, that's the organization, it is part of, it is military intelligence, and they are the group that has done a lot of this kind of hacking and leaking. And those, that was a definite technique that was used uh, to great success back in 2016. Remember, uh, the GRU uh, helped to hack into the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, and into John Podesta's emails. And then they gave that to WikiLeaks and then WikiLeaks disseminated it. So you have the intelligence agencies. Then you have this kind of, it, now it gets a little more amorphous because you have organizations like the IRA, the Internet Research Agency, which you may have heard of. They were uh, located in St. Petersburg and probably still are, you know, it's a little unclear exactly where they are, but they are, at a distance from the Kremlin deliberately. They are funded indirectly by the Kremlin. And this would be the hackers, the 20-year-old uh, guys who are in St. Petersburg pretending that they're Americans and stirring up trouble. So uh, that's, and that, and I'd love to talk about this, Pat, a little bit more, but there, that provides a layer of, uh, um, let's say, distance from the government and deniability so that the Russian mm -hmm. government and President Putin, Putin can say, we didn't do it. We had nothing to do with it. And, you know, technically he might be right because ostensibly or officially they didn't, but they do through the back door. And then you have another phenomenon, which is really, I call them patriotic hackers. These can be people who are not paid and they can be doing it simply because they um, are proud patriots of Russia. They want to get back at the United States or at another country, and they kind of join this fray. And then putting this all together is the internet. And on the internet, as we know, it is not the old paradigm of, let's say, one country propagandizing a view and trying to convince people to see it their way. It is now a very circular situation in which a bit of information gets unleashed. It could, it could be a piece of video from the United States. It could be a meme. It could be a little bit of music. It could be real live video from a political event or whatever. It gets taken up into what I think of as kind of a vortex of information and then gets sucked around the world and changed in different countries. Russia is very good at taking things that are happening in the United States, weaponizing them and spinning them around, sending them back to the United States to sow mayhem. 
And I'll end with this, Pat, because this is an endless subject. I'm actually teaching a course at Georgetown that I call Information Wars. The, mm -hmm. the final thing I'd say is, you know, we, we tend to think of this as in kind of the old terms as Russia's propagandizing us and they are trying to make us do things. It's really more that right now they try to put out flack, a whole lot of information, some of which is contradictory in and of itself. They put out, they can put out, you know, we love Joe Biden. We hate Joe Biden. Joe Biden is a monster. Joe Biden is a wonderful person. It doesn't make any difference. And it can mm -hmm. also be the same thing with Donald Trump. There's a lot of dissonance about Donald Trump as well. What they're doing is confusing people and mm -hmm. making people feel kind of disempowered to take the steps that a citizen might want to take to participate in society, to vote, to believe that it makes any difference. So sorry to go on for that long, but I think it's important to kind of get into the system as it is. Yeah, no, I, I do think it's important to lay that out. And I, I think you did that very well. I wanna ask you two things based off that. Um, that is a multi-layered and sophisticated network that you just described. Has the U.S. taken it seriously enough? Do we Have we taken the, the measures needed to counter it? And then tangentially, since you um, brought up uh, uh, Biden and you know there is this Hunter Biden laptop story, and Putin went out of his way to publicly reject that story, what is the calculation there from him? <laughs> That's an intriguing question. Um, on your first question, I would say yes, the, our government takes it seriously. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there are robust efforts to try to, number one, understand what's going on. Sometimes it's not really clear what yeah. Russia is trying to do. And I'll give you an example. Um, you could, if you have a Facebook account or something, that's pretty, it gets pretty clear. I mean, eventually it's, you know, it's hard, but it's not that hard to figure out that this is a disinformation campaign. But what happens when Russia, or we've actually seen Iran, uh, China doesn't do that much, but what if they get into, which Russia did in 2016, they get into some part of the election apparatus or system. They don't change votes. What are they doing? Mm -hmm. And it was not clear in 2016 precisely what they were doing with that. Uh, it is believed, and I, I am not, you know, obviously a CIA, so I can't tell you, but from what I understand from them, essentially that the Russians were trying to carry out a little, um, you know, intelligence work to find out how does the system work? Who are these voters? And with the idea that it could be weaponized. And certainly you have recently, very within the last couple of weeks, you had that attempt by Iran and you had an attempt by Russia to get information on individual Americans. To what purpose? It's still a little murky, but that is what they're doing. Are we doing enough to counter it? I don't believe we are, but this is a very complicated subject because even going back to 2016, part of the calculus that Barack Obama had at that point, when he knew that they were doing something, when he knew that they were interfering, 
And he told uh, Vladimir Putin directly not to interfere. Mm -hmm. But there was also the fear that our government had that if you retaliate, retaliation could be very dangerous because depending upon how you retaliate, you might spark a cyber war. And you don't know where a cyber war will end. Will a cyber war end with missiles in the air? Will it end with the opponent turning off the electrical grid in some city or in some region? Will it turn out that you know water supplies would be affected? Would boats be affected? It, it gets very dangerous very fast. So in trying to fight back, I believe that more can be done, but it's very complicated in how you do that. Now on Is the Putin, lack of retaliation seen as a weakness though? It can be. I, de I definitely feel, I think 2016, there was a lot of concern and because there was not a, a very strong answer other than telling Putin directly, but you know, who knows whether that has any real effect. But I do think that they, they took that as somewhat of a green light, or let's call it at least an amber light, that they could continue to do something. And, you know, we've had sanctions, a lot of sanctions. Uh, I, am, I believe that sanctions sometimes can work, but I think that that has now become our kind of go-to, grab it off the shelf, take another sanction, and hope that it stops that behavior. Yeah. It's not. It's not that effective. In the meantime, they have um, accomplished several things, it seems. They have sort of tested the, uh, uh, the fences on this to see how secure our uh, voting system is. They have let us know that they can do it. Um, they did enter into several states' uh, systems, although we're told there's no evidence that they changed anything. Um, and they, they see just how far they can push it, right? Exactly. And that's where we get into these areas. You know, what exactly are they trying to do? Are they trying to change votes? That is serious. But it appears that they haven't tried to physically change votes. But the problem is, if you p change people's minds, you can change right. votes. Yeah. So, and, and I want to make sure we get to the other part of this, which is um, the Putin's calculation on the uh, Biden story. You know, I, I looked at that because every time Putin speaks, I want to be very careful about what precisely he says. So, mm -hmm. as we all know, President Putin the other day basically downplayed the criticism by President Trump about Joe Biden's son, Hunter, uh, mm -hmm. you know, having a business and making money in Ukraine, et cetera. So what did Putin say? I mean, if you looked at the reports, if you looked at the headlines, it sounded like Vladimir Putin was downplaying or even negating what President Trump says, which is very interesting. It uh, doesn't happen a lot. And, uh, and he was basically saying, oh, it doesn't really make any difference, et cetera. So here's what Putin said. Uh, well, it doesn't appear to be anything criminal. He made good money. We don't know anything about it. So here's, you know, this is classic Vladimir Putin. It's like, you know, I haven't heard anything about the fact that you murdered your wife. I mean, I can't imagine that you would murder your wife or, you know, that is a bit of trolling that he does. So when I read this, I say, ostensibly, he was criticizing Trump. 
but I would not say. He always leaves a little door open, right? (laughs) Exactly. So I would say it's classic Putin playing both sides against the middle. There, there are so many things I want to ask you about, but one thing in particular interested me, and that is, you know, we know that Putin is always looking for vulnerabilities in, uh, in the U.S., but does he also need a degree of reliability um, from this country? And I'm, I'm thinking in particular of the nuclear arms treaties. Like the START treaty is said to be close, but it's still out of reach. Um, what, what is the mix that he needs from us, and is he getting it? You know, I think he um, primarily needs some type of predictability, uh, which he does not have right now. I don't think that this administration is predictable because you do, and we can talk about this more, but, you know, you have a president, President Trump, who is saying nice things about Putin, but an administration that, you know, takes, uh, invokes sanctions against Russia and takes certain steps against Russia which almost seems contradictory, but that is, I'm not gonna call it a policy. I would say that's the approach. I don't see any coherent policy on the part of this administration. Is there any way that works to our advantage or is that just a flat out disadvantage? No, I I don't think it does. I mean, I have heard the theory, well, that keeps them on their toes. You know, when you're dealing with a nuclear armed country, I think some predictability is helpful. And Mm -hmm. if you know, especially on these arms control talks about the new start, Putin wants new start to continue. We do not believe, the United States does not believe that Russia violated the New START agreement. They have violated another agreement, arms control agreement, but we do not believe that they have violated New START. And New START gives us the opportunity to evaluate and to uh, have some type of clarity about what the Russians are doing. So I find, I personally believe that it is destabilizing to get rid of that agreement. Now, Mm -hmm. whether we will get, we only have, what do we have, six days? I don't think um, it's gonna happen. Uh, Mm -hmm. There has been some negotiating, but so far it doesn't look as if that's gonna happen. Mm -hmm. Um, Very quickly, I know that um, we pulled out of the uh, Intermediate Range Nuclear Force Treaty last year, and Putin has said that was a mistake, was it? Uh, yeah, I tend to think it was. I think, granted, they were violating parts of that. But, you know, that's what negotiations are about. I really believe that if you stop negotiating and you just say, you violated it, therefore we are walking away, that when you get to these nuclear issues, it's very, very dangerous. And look at what's coming down the pike. We not only have the weapons that exist right now, we have hydro, uh, hydro, I almost said hydro, sorry, hydroponic, (laughs) hydroponic. We have very sophisticated new weapons Mm -hmm. that are, that are being developed right now in very dangerous systems. So Mm -hmm. I think if we could uh, certainly extend the new start agreement for more than a year, I don't think a year does much, it can easily be extended for the next five years, during which time you would have both sides coming together to talk about the new world of these weapons and how they might be included. And as President Trump wants, China. China doesn't want to do it right now, but over the next five years, there might be 
an opportunity to bring them into some of these negotiations. So that kind of naturally leads us to um, how this administration has, has uh, handled uh, Russian relations and how that might differ in, say, a Biden administration. Can you kind of sum that up for us, please? Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, I guess I've made it clear kind of what I feel about um, this administration, mm -hmm. that it hasn't been clear and it has not had a real policy or strategy toward, um, toward Putin or Russia. So that I think the Biden administration, there are a couple of things. Biden is a predictable quantity to the Russians. He is more of a traditional politician who comes from a world of predictability and international relations. So I think even though the Russians know that Biden, especially after 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea and has been mm -hmm. very critical of that, they mm -hmm. kind of know what they're going to get with Biden. And mm -hmm. I think that they also would feel that you might be able to negotiate on other things. And other things definitely would be start. I think there are other things that we could be doing with Russia that would be useful. This is not to say that um, you know, we should accept everything that they do. I think we will always be in definitely in competition and sometimes you know, opponents. That we, but we have to take Russia as it is, not as we would like it to be. And remember, and Pat, you probably remember this very well. After 2014, when Russia, when Russia um, annexed Crimea, the, the um, Obama administration stopped a lot of diplomatic uh, communication mm -hmm. with Russia. Mm -hmm. Diplomats were kicked out. Uh, diplomatic posts were shut down. And we stopped a lot of the bilateral negotiations and discussions yeah. on various issues, even healthcare. We just stopped mm -hmm. talking to them as a way of punishing them. I mm -hmm. personally believe, and I think there are others who really feel this, that it's time to now get back to talking with them. Be so this would be a, the Russian reset that's been talked about. So I wouldn't, I would not use the word reset because okay. it has too many. And I was actually <laughs> uh, covering Hillary Clinton yeah. when they had that button and they, yeah, you know, the reset. reset button. I wouldn't go back to reset, but I think I would reevaluate so that we would have, you know, cooperation and competition. And we would stand up for the things that we believe and mm -hmm. what's in our interests. And our security mm -hmm. interests, I, I don't think, are served by having a country that feels that it wants to uh, undermine us at every turn. So, uh, you know, I would, I would go back to talking with them. I would reopen uh, some of those diplomatic buildings that we have here. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not, you know, paying them back or being nice to them or being nice to Putin. I think it is going to be competition and cooperation, but we have to start getting back to some type of real relationship with Russia. Mm -hmm. Is there the animus between um, Putin and Biden that there was with, uh, that Putin felt toward Clinton, Hillary Clinton? I don't think so. I don't think so because he, there really was personal animosity, although I wouldn't go too far in that direction because I think Putin is a pretty realistic person, but I yeah. do think 
that he was, remember what Hillary Clinton said, she compared him to Hitler. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, that doesn't go over well. And she, and she also, you know, Obama said he's a regional, you know, a, a regional leader, not- Diminished him, minimized him, yeah. Minimized him. He's uh-huh. like the boy at the back of the classroom, the sullen boy at the back. Those things were personal insults I would uh-huh. stay away from the personal insults. I would just, you know, talk to Putin like an adult and sometimes very hard. But I would I would stop the Putin is a monster, um, you know, verbiage because I don't think it gets us anyplace. No, no. Um, I know that you wanted to um, talk a little bit about Belarus and uh, they have been gripped by civil unrest for months now, um, ever since the re-election of Alexandra Lukashenko, that um, many have seen as a fraudulent uh, election. Uh, Putin has talked about possibly using military force in that area. Um, what are the repercussions of this for Europe and by extension, the West? What, what do we need to be, what needs to be our level of concern here? Well, I think the uh, primary thing would be if these protests continue and now they are having um, a nationwide strike strike, by the opposition. Uh, I would be very worried that if it turns violent and it has been violent, but it's been violent with these security forces cracking down on the demonstrators. The demonstrators for the most part have been quite peaceful and I think have been very canny in the way they've done this. Women dressed in white, carrying flowers, a much more peaceful uh, image. But if it gets to the point, I I think that Lukashenko really believes that it's over for him. And we're getting to that point. It Uh could be possible for Russia to send in some type of military aid. If that happens, it's a different ballgame. It would be Russian forces yet again in Europe. And uh, that would remind us all of Ukraine and Crimea and little green men who were Mm -hmm. Russian troops kind of in disguise. And that I think would be a very different ball game. Uh, Mm -hmm. That said, we don't know. I mean, Putin can do things by, with a lot of deniability as he's Mm -hmm. done. By the Mm -hmm. way, he's sending journalists to to, uh, Belarus to help them with their broadcasting. So, you know, that is a way of helping (laughs) with propaganda. But I do think it's dangerous. You know, Pat, one thing that I do think, we have the immediate and then we have the long-term. What is very interesting about Belarus is the the Belarusian people are not saying we are with the West or we are with the East, as they did in Ukraine. They definitely did that in Ukraine. They are saying we are for Belarus. Uh We are not on the side of Russia. We're not on the side of Europe and the United States. We want democracy in our own country. And that to me is a very interesting development. And one of the reasons I am convinced that it's happening is because we haven't, a lot of people don't pay a lot of attention to Belarus, but they have a vibrant IT industry over the last 10 years. There, There are tens of thousands of people in Minsk who work in the IT industry. This has created kind of a middle class. And so it's very sophisticated. So what they're asking for and they're demanding, it's not like 
um, the peasants of 20 years ago. This is not, mm -hmm. you know, Lukashenko has been in power for 26 years. It was mm -hmm. much more agricultural. Now it's a more sophisticated, educated populace, and they are making demands that are quite different. So I think so even with his nationalist authoritarian approach, this IT class has still managed to bubble up and they now are rejecting his uh, alliance with Russia and, and seeking their own democracy, it sounds like. Yes, although I would be careful about the alliance with Russia. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't think they're looking at, at that way. I think they're mm -hmm. looking at a man who has been in power for 26 years mm -hmm. and who has become more and more repressive. And so yes. what they're looking for is they feel that that vote was stolen and they want they want a real a real vote, an honest mm -hmm. vote. And also another subject that maybe people can ask about, COVID is playing a role in Belarus mm -hmm. because President Lukashenko, when it hit um, kind of the, a massive, it, it was, they were began to kind of take it seriously and people were getting sick. He actually said, drink more vodka and go to the sauna and you will live more healthily and you won't get <sighs> This did not go over well with the educated populace of Minsk. So mm -hmm. actually COVID, I'm seeing that more and more in mm -hmm. former Soviet countries where the inability of the local government to, or the regional government to handle COVID is definitely now playing a political role. Hmm. There's, I know we're getting close to the time when we're going to start taking um, questions from our audience, and I wanted to ask you one more thing about um, China. Um, Putin recently hinted at a possible military alliance with China, calling it, quote, certainly imaginable. Uh, what should the U.S. be watching for here? You know, Russia and President Putin like to talk about that because mm -hmm. uh, after if you go back to 2014, after Ukraine and Crimea, Russia didn't have a lot of friends. So um, it turned to China. And I was there at the time, and I could really see this. You know, credit card, Chinese credit cards, and we are friends, and signs in Chinese, etc. I think that they do have, they have, you know, positive relations with China. There's no question. There's more trade. Um, they do have joint military exercises, mm -hmm. but the, I think Russia realizes that the Chinese economy is so much bigger than the Russian mm -hmm. economy. And Russia's dilemma is really, <clears throat> will it be uh, overwhelmed by China? Will, will China turn into the big brother and Russia will be left kind of as a smaller brother, except that it has nuclear weapons. It has far more nuclear weapons than China. But economically, there's no comparison. And China is involved in with the Belt and Road Initiative throughout <laughs> Central Asia, in the Caucasus, you name it. They are in the post-Soviet space. And mm -hmm. so, you know, Russia looks at it and says, well, they are, you know, our friends. But I think they are a bit wary of Chinese influence in what used to be their space. Because it can't be a relationship of by definition. And yet, um, you know, Putin obviously wants Russia to play a bigger 
role on the world stage, maybe not as big as it was uh, in the old Soviet Union, but some he doesn't want to be known as a regional power. Um, so what what do they how do they move forward on that? I'm, I'm just wondering what we need to watch for as he continues to strive for this bigger presence. Well, I think Putin um, wants to restore Russia's influence and power around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, he grew up in the Soviet Union. He remembers the Soviet Union as a major player uh, for yeah. good or for evil, but uh, or for ill, let's put it that way, during the Cold War. And there's a certain nostalgia for the influence. Putin is not, you know, um, he's not a communist. He's not talking about the Soviet Union, but he does want the influence of Russia to be everywhere where there is a major issue to be discussed, whether it's at the United Nations, whether it's in Syria, the Middle East, Russia's back in the Middle East in a way that it never was except in the Soviet mm -hmm. Union. And so he wants to rebuild that power. And you know, Pat, I think, and for our viewers, I think it's important to realize that it, Putin is a realist. So he knows that the Russian economy compared to the United States economy also it, it simply cannot compete. Uh -huh. However, um, they, they can, that, that is one of the reasons that he wants to weaken the United States. Uh -huh. He doesn't want to destroy the United States. I no. do not believe that that is the case, but he wants to weaken the United States and its influence. So when it sees that, let's say the US and its allies in Europe or in NATO are um, at loggerheads or criticizing, criticizing um, our allies in Europe, Putin looks at that as a good thing because it creates disunity and that undermines American influence and power. And so, you know, I think that's more what he does. He wants to exploit where America makes mistakes or where mm -hmm. it is weak in order to buoy the uh, image and, and the power and influence of Russia. Do they see us as weak at the moment? You know, you hear that from some Russians. There actually mm -hmm. are Russians who believe that the United States is about to fall apart. Although I think, you know, you could probably at this point find Americans who kind of feel the same thing. That is a joke, <laughs> but I'm not, mm -hmm. you know, there are elements of this, but there actually are some people in Russia who believe China is going to take over the world. The United States is on its way out. I don't think it's that simple. I think China is, you know, growing and is much more influential every single day. But, um, but I, I don't think that realistically Putin feels that the United States is that weak. After all, I mean, if you take the United States and NATO, it's NATO allies and the United States together, and if there were, God forbid, some type of conflict, Russia would not win mm -hmm. against that power. But that's not what Putin wants. He, he's mm -hmm. moving around the edges. He's moving around the edges. He's not looking for the grand conflict. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's using and exploiting ways mm -hmm. of weakening the United States. And that's where we get into some of the, you know, 2016 influence, um, you know, sowing division among Americans, etc. It's all part of that. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I want to turn now to questions from our audience, and you'll have to bear with me because I need to focus on this. Um, right. Stepping away from the election issues seems the biggest piece of unfinished business between the US and Russia is building down our nuclear arsenals. Is there a strategy being discussed on either side for progress in the next three, five, or 10 years? Well, I think we got into that a bit when we were talking about New START. The New START agreement was signed 10 years ago. Is it, it is expiring literally in February. So right after the president, whoever it is, is inaugurated, it will expire. And if it expires, it will be the first time since 1972 that there is simply no arms control agreement between the United States and Russia. That, in my book, is dangerous, mm -hmm. but it's, it's all we've got at this point. There is no other agreement, basically. Yeah. So um, the strategy, I think, you know, Putin has said, let's extend START, which was built into that agreement. You can actually rather simply extend it for another five years. Mm -hmm. And Putin wants to do that, he has said, with no conditions. The Trump administration has said, well, they didn't really talk about it for a very long time. They talked about China joining it. I think that basically the people who were in charge of their nuclear negotiations didn't want an extension. Uh -huh. Now they're talking about it. And I think it would, you know, for President Trump, it would be, it would look like a win if you could get some type of, um, at least what looks like an agreement. But I think it's awfully late in the game. This in the is, next six days, yeah. Seems that window might have closed. Most, this is so esoteric in terms of how you negotiate these things. There is no harder agreement in the world than arms control. It is mm -hmm. very technical. So to try to do that, you know, I, I would say the next president, or I would hope that President Trump would just say, let's keep it in place. Mm -hmm. It continues, you know, it, it keeps a little stability, and then you negotiate yeah. down the road. Um, here's another one uh, that says, where are EU and in particular German policies to Russia, most notably in alignment with the US and misaligned with the US? Ooh, that's a good one. Well, mm -hmm. I would say economically, you know, this um, Nord Stream 2 oil pipeline is something that Germany wants very much. Uh, mm -hmm. It is now in jeopardy. Um, I would say, you know, the, the conundrum for the Germans is always they want to do business with Russia, but they have stuck to sanctions, supporting sanctions, thanks to Angela Merkel. So, they, there's always that tension in the relationship with Russia. Um, what they certainly agree on a lot of, uh, you know, general issues. Um, they have criticized Putin for uh, the poisoning of Navalny, who ended up in a hospital, you know, in Germany. Uh, they have criticized about Ukraine, about Crimea. You know, I would say pretty much they are in line with the general Western agreement. But the business part of it is where Germany tends to be a little bit more open to negotiating, to uh, working with Russia. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, hmm. um, this, this question goes back to um, Lukashenko's long tenure. It says Putin has been around a while as well. How is his legitimacy holding up 
especially with younger Russians. And I'm, I'm particularly interested in this IT class that you mentioned in Belarus. Is there a similar development in Russia? Yeah, that's a great question. The other course, by the way, that I'm teaching at Georgetown is called uh, the Putin Generation. And it's specifically on yeah, examining young people, 20 years and younger, who have grown up with no leader other than Vladimir Putin. So I've been looking at the you know, data on this and they're, they're very interesting. So oddly enough, if you go back to 2018, most young people, and I'm, I'm, you know, generally this would be kids in the big cities who are uh, highly educated, travel, have a passport, probably have more money than young people in the countryside. They supported Putin. But I think that was kind of a general, um, the whole society was pretty supportive of Putin. But since 2018, the economy has worsened. You've had oil prices that fell. That was a major factor. And then you had sanctions that have hurt Russia. And so the economy in general um, has been hit. They have enormous reserves, by the way. They have a lot of money in reserve, so they can they can continue. It's not like the United States. They have, you know, a lot. I think it's six hundred billion in reserves, but they have they have um, they they the economy was hurt, and so the parents of those young people, as well and as well as the young people, felt that. Um, there, that Putin had not continued to support the economy as he should have. So uh -huh. the support for Putin has dropped. And I think if you look at the, it's, they're fascinating studies of what these young people feel. They are all on the internet. They are not uh -huh. watching TV. Many of them don't have TVs. So yes. they are not exposed. I think we talked about this, Pat. They're not exposed to government propaganda the way mm -hmm. their parents work, because they're not watching TV. <laughs> so they are not aware. TV. No. It's, it's true, their parents are watching TV, but the young people mm -hmm. are not. And mm -hmm. so the young people are watching uh, YouTube videos, and some of the most influential people in the country right now are bloggers and vloggers on the internet mm -hmm. and on mm -hmm. YouTube. And so they are, as a, as a group, they are much more, positive about the West. They are more critical of Putin than they have been. Hmm. That said, and they are more interested in the West and supportive of kind of uh, life in the West. But I hmm. would put up a big caveat. It is not that they support some type of, let's say, Jeffersonian democracy, right. you know, theoretical. Hmm. It's not that. It's that you can go to the West and you can have a better life and the banks work and you don't get shaken down by the police. And you well, have to stay in line <laughs> that's for everything. You don't have to say, yeah, but they, they feel the West functions better. So it's mm -hmm. much more transactional than theoretical. So they're well, very, very interesting group. Let's stay with the Russian economy for a moment, because I mean, if you if you look at the way COVID has hit the American economy, I, you know, we have pandemic triggered recessions in Minnesota and most other states as they deal with this. 
Um, has there been a similar economic impact in Russia? I noticed that they have imposed a national mask mandate and are um, uh, closing entertainment venues to try to uh, curb their own spread. Although I, I haven't been able to read too much about exactly how widespread COVID is in Russia. Uh, it was very bad in the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, they were at one point, I think they were number two in the world then they went down to number three in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, not quite sure where they are right now, but they, they've really been hit hard. Mm -hmm. Now, Putin in the beginning kind of downplayed it, but very quickly took it seriously. So you had, he went out to his uh, residence in the countryside and essentially has stayed there running the government uh, <laughs> on the internet, you know, kind of wow. like on Zoom or whatever <laughs> version they use. Um, his, uh, the, the system, the healthcare system in the big cities has been hurt, but it seems to be um, surviving, let's say, Moscow, St. Petersburg. Moscow is pretty much okay. St. Petersburg has been hit. When you get into the countryside, that is where people have been really hurt by COVID because oh, the healthcare yes. system is not as developed in the countryside in smaller cities. So uh -huh. the what has happened, and this is one of the sad things, kind of similar to the United States, small business, which was mm -hmm. beginning to take off mm -hmm. in Russia, has been really decimated. Mm -hmm. So that it has hurt the economy and they have much the same debate that we have here. Do you shut down the economy, you know, damage the economy or do you save lives? And they have opted to have kind of like a, a hybrid version of this. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that Putin has taken it more seriously than um, President Trump actually. Putin uh, went out, in fact, at one point, the video, the early, some of the earliest video, he was dressed in an entire like bio suit when he went to a location. He was dressed in yellow. You can find it on the web. And wow. he, he has urged his citizens to be careful, et cetera. That said, you know, Russians are, um, well, I, you know, I studied there and I lived there for a long time. They kind of are daredevils sometimes. So you do have people. Restaurants. They are, you know, yeah. so they're in restaurants, you know, without masks and living it up. But I do think it, it has been a very serious problem and continues to be. But don't forget, they have two vaccines that they have developed. They have not mm -hmm. tested them the mm -hmm. way, let's say, the rigorous testing that we have in the United States and in Western Europe, but they do have two vaccines. They have given the vaccines to a number of people um, and they are using it as part of their soft power diplomacy. They are selling it and in some cases giving it to other countries. And I think that they are, you know, they, there's no question that they're using this as an example, almost like a space race back in the 1960s. We get to the moon, we get into space, you know, Sputnik, in fact, they call the first vaccine Sputnik, just to remind <laughs> us that they were in space. <laughs> Glory days. Yeah, exactly. Well, they, do, they do have some of the best immunologists in the world, and that's in part they because they spent so much time developing chemical weapons. But that aside for a moment, the U.S. and Russia have collaborated on vaccine efforts in the past, have they not? Is there any 
scenario in which you would see um, us collaborating with them on uh, a vaccine for COVID? You know, at this point, the countries seem to be doing it kind of differently. Uh, mm -hmm. Russia already has developed those two. Uh, who knows, maybe they will have more. But I think the, the uh, Trump administration has made it clear that they're using American companies, that they mm -hmm. are more focused on creating a vaccine for the United States. And that's a, a different scenario from Putin. Putin is using it again as part of their soft power image that they are willing to share it with the world. Whereas I think President Trump has essentially said, I'm going to have it for Americans and then you know, maybe for the rest of the world. Hmm. Well, we'll see which is the better approach. Now, I want to get to a question here from somebody who seems to be very familiar with your work. Um, the question is, in your 2013 master's degree thesis on Russia's soft power, you wrote that Russia is, quote, still labeled with the image of the Soviet Union. It is like a sports team trying to reimagine its name and mascot. It has no theme song. Moscow more often plays defense rather than offense, that they are intent on transforming and strengthening Russia's image and international influence. Does Russia have a new theme song? What is their current approach to soft power? And you just outlined some of that. Uh, well, um, thank you for reading that. I'm very impressed. Whoever that was, I have to find out. Um, I, you know, I don't think they have a theme song yet. I don't think they have a bumper sticker. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the problems because the way we look, we Americans look at Russia is, um, you know, red, communist, hammer and sickle, uh, you know, the Americans. It's kind of all of these images that are very hot and very exciting and very dramatic. But it's the old Soviet Union. Right. Russia today is a much more complicated country. Mm -hmm. It is not the old Soviet Union, but it doesn't fit on a bumper sticker. You know, what is mm -hmm. Russia? And I think Putin would love to be able to do that if he could, you know, encapsulate for his own people and for mm -hmm. the world what modern Russia is. It would work a lot better, but he doesn't have that. So he cobbles together, you know, a little bit of the czars and a little bit of, you know, the Soviet Union that saved the world from fascism in World War II, and then a little bit of the modern Russia, et cetera. But it hasn't, to my mind, it hasn't gelled in this, I'm going to call it PR, but essentially it is. It's kind of PR image that it could sell to the world. And that is one of the problems. It's not that easy to do that. And so they, what they do, if you can't say, here we are, Russia, you should be like us, then what you do is say, well, don't be like them. Don't mm -hmm. be like the United States. And this is where I think they're very effective when you get into propaganda in just a general sense. What they are doing right now is they are saying, look at the chaos in the United States. Yeah. Look at those people. I just watched Russian TV. I have it. I actually pay for Russian TV on my cable. And I was looking at it. And they were talking about, you know, um, images and change in minds and changing minds and all this stuff for the election. But what Russia is saying to the world and some of this actually works, is that the United States is chaotic. They are at each other's throats. The um, 
any type that we are we and they would actually they actually have said president trump we are an agent of chaos is the way they put it we are an agent of chaos in the world we invade countries we take over is it this is a message that they are using and sadly it can be very effective so that's a long way of answering it but it is something that i firmly believe that they look at the problems that the united states genu- genuinely has racial divisions economic divisions disparities etc and they play on that and they exploit it to is our there, is, detriment if if there is a change in the administration in the coming election is there perhaps a window of malleability um opportunity where we could take advantage of the fact that Russia is still figuring out its new theme song, its new image, its new branding, um, and, and go after, um, you know, dispel some of those images that they're painting about us and trying to figure out ways of cooperation with them. You know, I think one area that we could definitely work on is climate change. There is no question in my mind. Putin takes it very seriously. He has talked about it. Hmm. He has said he's very concerned about it. And if you wanted to turn over a new leaf, and it's something that you really need to do, I mean, we need every country in the world to take this seriously, that you could talk to Russia. They have fantastic science scientists, that you hmm. could talk to them and try to develop some programs and inventions, you know, that would, I'm not trying to be Pollyannish in this, mm-hmm. believe me. But I do think that that is a potential area for cooperation with Russia. Um, I also think more immediately, I would say firefighting. You know, Russia right now is every year it has fires that maybe are not as bad as ours, but they're similar and they are quite good at firefighting. Why not, you know, increase the cooperation with firefighting and fighting diseases, that type of thing? I think. These are the areas that could help to change the image of Russia and would be good for the world and it would be certainly good for the relationship. Well, That's thank you so much. That's a fabulous place. Yeah. We're going <laughs> to pause just for a couple minutes in the middle here. Um, this is the end of the first part of the evening's program. Uh, for those of you who've been watching on YouTube, thank you so much for being part of this. Um, you know, we're uh, looking forward to another set of programs coming up soon. This Friday, we'll be looking at the new Africa continental free trade area and the ways that Minnesota and Africa fit together on things like mining and other industries. Um, next uh, November 9th at 6, 6 p.m., um, uh, the man who ran Washington, a, a kind of a book club about the James Baker and the new James Baker autobiography and global conversations in November on the 18th, uh, looking at the Latino immigrants and their impact contributions to the Minnesota economy. Uh, our partners tonight, you saw some of the names in the beginning, but also the, the Museum of Russian Art, the Russian American Business and Cultural Council. For all of you watching on the YouTube channel, we're going to say good evening and thank you for participating, being here tonight. For those of you watching on Zoom, you are members. Thank you again for your membership.